Hey, I know I quote this passage often, and it wasn't in my notes, but it is a good reminder why we're studying God. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> I was just getting ready and saw an interview on, kind of in the background, one of our uh, four top candidates. Maybe you saw this, the questioner asked, hey, how important is your faith? Oh, it's so important to me. Very important. And then the qualifier was, you'll catch it on the reruns tonight perhaps, oh, I would never want to convert anybody or anything. (laughs) I thought to myself, then we're talking about uh, two entirely different things. Because whatever your quote-unquote Christian faith is, if you don't understand what's at stake and if you wouldn't sit in your front room or at a Starbucks and beg people to be reconciled to God, then I think we're talking about two different things here. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. I was reading, uh, rereading excerpts from Neil Postman's book, just because today we're going to talk a little bit about propositional truth. Have you read this little book, Amusing Ourselves to Death? It's a classic. Uh, Professor Postman died about five years ago, but this was one of his best uh, evaluations of culture. I mean, this guy is not a Christian. This is not a Christian book. But he, uh, he speaks of the kind of the soundbite culture settling in on Christianity. And he says, as a consequence, what is preached, uh, and he's speaking here in this paragraph on television, is not anything like the Sermon on the Mount. He says, religious programs are filled with good cheer and they celebrate affluence. He says, though their messages are trivial, the shows have high ratings. He says, or rather, because their messages are trivial, the shows have high ratings. Now, this is a non-Christian, non-Christian professor, secular university, who just looks honestly at the facts. Here's his next sentence. He says, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. And when it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. <laughs> I was looking up on the internet, well, what could, you know, postman, maybe he was a closet Christian or something and had confirmation on certain reviews of his life that he wasn't. But one Christian who sat through his classes said, I learned a lot more from him about Christianity and how I ought to view it than almost any Christian I've ever sat under in terms of a Christian teacher he was talking about. I hope he wasn't talking about his pastor. Oh, and I hope he didn't go here if that's what he was saying. But, <clears throat> but that's the reality of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Sermon on the Mount. You know that's going on here, Matthew chapter 5 through 7? Yeah, you don't get this in soundbite Christianity Day. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. Matthew 7, 13. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter through it. I mean, most people don't even want to talk about destruction, God's wrath. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I've said this is the most terrifying passage in my perspective in the entire New Testament. Next verse. This is germane to that comment by Dr. Postman. Watch out for the false prophets. 
They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like one of us, but inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. Now, Jesus says, look carefully, because by their fruits, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree, bad fruit. Good tree can't bear good fruit, and a bad tree can't bear, I'm sorry, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Just right there, by the way, two back-to-back references to God's wrath would probably get him, you know, marked off the list of any candidating job as he's trying to get a pastorate somewhere in America. Too much hellfire and brimstone. And you want to talk about exclusivity, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the topic for tonight. How would I ever know what God's will is? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons, perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly. Here's the topic of the entire semester. I never knew you. You can invert that, right? And you never knew me. Because if we knew him, he would know us. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. He says, you didn't know me. Away from you, evil doers. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he's the wise man who's built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. That's a soteriological, eschatological statement. I mean, this is, we've now three references to hell in the same sermon. Certainly not get a job in Orange County. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, he's a foolish man who's built his house uh, if he does not, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the typical pastoral candidate, not as their teachers of the law. Apart from me, I never knew you. John 17, he says, this is eternal life. He's speaking now to the Father. He says that they may know you, God the Father, that they may know you. That's what this whole semester is about. Unfortunately, in a day that doesn't much care for the authoritative statements of Christ or anything from his apostles nor the prophets of the Old Testament... It's going to be hard for us to really discuss God with any clarity and authority and precision unless we spend a whole night talking about the reliability, the importance of the avenue, touching partly on epistemology and how we know what we know and how we learn what we learn. And we start to say, well, you know what? We we do have an unalterable source of information from God that settles every argument, and that's what we're here to master. Your opinion, my opinion, not important. Now, last week we talked about the worldview. And we said a Christian worldview begins with the understanding that God has revealed himself. So, I'm so magnanimous on Thursday nights. I didn't even make you write that, did I? And you know, I need a worksheet. Is there an extra somewhere? I really should come with notes. It would be good. Thank you so much. 
Because so far, none of that was in the notes. But I got it now. Yeah, I couldn't get over that statement. How important is your faith? Oh, it is so important to me. So important to me. Oh, but let me clarify. But I would never want to convert anybody. I think to myself, the theology of a burning world, poised to receive the wrath of God. And you don't want to pull anybody out of the burning house, really? Why? Because that's not politically correct? Now, we'll never get to this outline if you don't stop me when I start going down those <laughs> paths. I'll get the five o'clock shadow off listening to that interview thinking I should not be listening to this right now. I'm getting angry. That back uh, screen, that cheat screen's not on for me. All right. God has revealed himself. That's our fundamental assumption. And we need to talk about that, the concept of revelation. And there's another pretty chart. That's it. You're going to have to follow along here because I didn't number any of the cells. But let's talk about this a little bit. What's important is this concept of revelation. And wow, those are small letters, aren't they? Holy smokes. Revelation, in a phrase, to disclose. Apocalypsis, what is revealed, revelation. Of course, we get the last 66 book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, It's got the name Revelation. And uh, though we often think of it as something that's yet to come, because everything that's yet to come, we need it revealed. Uh, The whole Bible is is a record of revelation. Apocalypsis. Your old Bibles, your granny's Bible said the apocalypse of Jesus Christ to disclose. Here's a little more full and... Precise definition, if you can read it. The act of God disclosing that which would otherwise be unknown. Now, as we get into this, and we will, the nature of God, we discover as we study what God has said about himself, that he is a transcendent God, and that's going to be an important word for the next semester. He is altogether different. He is not one of us. And because he's other, because he's different, uh, he's got to let us know who he is. So, revelation becomes critical. Everything about an unknown, invisible God has to be revealed. And that's what revelation is all about. The act of God disclosing that which would otherwise be unknown. Okay, two kinds. This is a review for some of you who took some bibliology with us in the past. There is special, or you've done some reading, special, or what you might want to put as a parallel to that, specific, specific revelation, special or specific. And on the other box up here that heads up the other two columns, I want you to put this, this phrase, general. And by general, uh, we don't mean vague, although it is much more vague. What we mean by that when we read theology, we mean universal, universal revelation. Things that are specifically disclosed with specificity and detail and things that are broadly disclosed, which are by nature general, more general and and not as specific, but the point is that it's available to everyone. Special revelation. Just to kind of get this all clear in our minds, God is in the business, as we read his word, in revealing himself to individuals. And when he does, you're special. (laughs) You are what we call a prophet or a seer. That was the old word for it in Samuel's day, the seer. Uh, He could see God. He could hear God. And in this case, 
We can look in Scripture, and we have examples of, as long as we're talking about Samuel, he hears God's audible voice. Samuel, Samuel. And he goes to Eli. What are you talking about? I didn't say anything. That's certainly one way he does it. He does it through dreams. That was a big part of Joseph's revelatory reception of God's future information and present realities. Daniel, visions, visions, the distinction there, and this is not an exhaustive list, but the distinction is uh, one is at night (laughs) and one is Acts. If you want to put some references down here, you could have put... uh, much of the end of the book of Genesis, uh, 40, 39 through 50, uh, for dreams, Daniel chapter 4 through 7, 4 through 9, uh, beginning of 9 is a classic example of a vision. Uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter, the sheet comes down, it's a vision, middle of the day, trance is another word they use for it, an angelic message can be received. Even shepherds in that regard, uh, they don't fulfill an office of prophets, but they become prophets, don't they? They tell the message of the angelic messengers. God reveals some specific news to them about the birth of Christ, which we were in a meeting this morning, planning Christmas out already. It's coming fast. We've got a great Christmas that we're planning for you, by the way. Make you happy hear about Christmas? It made me panicked. Because the next meeting was on Easter. We're going to have an Easter meeting next. Which comes later this year, which I'm so glad. Scatterbrain. Urim and Thummim. Urim and Thummim. What? What did he say? Sick. Urim and Thummim. You remember what the Urim and Thummim were, right? You can explain it to us. Should I get you the microphone? You can explain it. Explain how that works. (laughs) We don't know. You can explain it then you're getting extra revelatory information because the Bible doesn't tell us. But something about the uh, divining aspects of the breastplate of the priesthood had these elements, probably a lot like casting of lots. But God's information was specifically revealed to individuals through things such as these. Then there is message to the masses. There is... Information God's going to give to a lot of people, which I guess you could slide angelic messenger over there as well. But usually the classical example is a prophet. Now he has to have revelation from God to give revelation to the masses. There are some exceptions. Writing on the wall in the book of Daniel. Um, You could even say the reading of the Ten Commandments. That's another special case. But uh, two ways, through preaching, thus saith the Lord, the prophets, the classical prophets, starting with Elijah and Elisha, and uh, certainly in the period of the divided kingdom, and I put a star by this one, writing. When they wrote, I'm going to put a star by the ones that we have contact and interface with. You can still read the words of Isaiah today, and he, thankfully, by God's providence, recorded the message. Preaching and writing to the masses. Now, let's make some observations about this. Uh, And more on God breathed later, but just jot down those words. God breathed. And I just want to deal with the things that relate to us. So this is specifically as it relates to writing. 
the written message of the prophets is said in the New Testament, looking back on the old, to be God-breathed. God was somehow the originator of the message, utilizing people to get the message out. And we are called to listen to the God-breathed words through the prophets. Called to listen passages, Psalm 119, longest chapter in all the Bible, is all about us taking heed to the message of the prophets. How can a young man keep his way pure? I mean, on and on it goes with rhetorical questions. Start listening to the written prophetic message, which is God's mind revealed to you via the prophets. Now there is general revelation to the individual. And because it's universal and it's to everyone, this hits and impacts our lives. Can you, re- can you read those or not? Can you? Some of you? No? Some of you in the back will sit in the front next week, won't you? All right. And I'll, if we just get bigger, bigger screens. There you go. <laughs> Let's get bigger screens. That was as big as we could get. Couldn't get them any bigger. Smaller chart. Yeah, that would work too. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's a good idea. I hadn't thought about that. To the individual. How does God reveal to you? Does it match? Does it fit? Yes, it does. Romans chapter 2 says that God is working in your spirit to be as general as possible with the words. And your spirit is giving information from God. Now, it was pre-programmed. It's called your conscience. There's a lot of teaching in the Bible about it. But you might be surprised to learn that in the scripture, your conscience or your spirit is out of batteries. There it goes. Is God breathed? God breathed. Now, all this is going to start to... Oh, yeah, this sounds familiar now. The word for spirit, pneuma, New Testament, right? Uh, Hebrew, what is it? Nepesh? Oh, help me. Ish? No. I forget. Same word for breath. Breath, spirit. And in the scripture, it says he's breathed. I mean, we could go to Genesis, see how he breathed into man his spirit. But his revelatory work of right and wrong, as we learn in Romans chapter 2, is a God-breathed revelation of God. And we're called to listen to it. There were so many passages here. I just picked this one. And it's got a familiar phrase to us. We still use this phrase, English colloquial phrase, to keep a clear conscience, um, really, cathos, a clean conscience is literally the word. But I'm supposed to listen to my conscience. doesn't always acquit me, right? First Corinthians 4. But it is important for me to listen to it because it's a God-breathed, revelatory act of God to keep me on the right track. Then God is witnessing of himself, revealing himself to the masses through creation. There are your three avenues, writing of the prophets, conscience in your head, in your spirit, and the creative world. And we preached on this recently, uh, maybe not so well, but I tried. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, talking about creation. Um, now, may surprise you also, Genesis, not Genesis, what is that? I can't read it, it's too small. Psalm 33, 6, also says that the creation was God-breathed. God breathed out the creative work of, of, of creation, which is interesting. Now, all of these can be distorted. You can distort the Bible. You can distort the conscience. You can ruin it, as the scripture says. You can uh, also ruin creation, which God 
actually was the initiator of ruining creation in part uh, through the curse in Genesis chapter 3. But also, as Psalm 19 says, we ought to listen to the voice of creation, or I could have put Romans chapter 1 because we studied that there as well. We are without excuse. God's attributes are revealed in nature. Okay? Now, that's a basic chart of what the Bible teaches about God revealing apocalypsis. He's disclosing himself. Now, you're not a prophet. And we could, that's another sermon. I could explain why you're not a prophet. But you are part of the masses that receives the writing of the prophets. And you have a conscience. And you live in the world. So all of those things speak to the attributes of God. We know something of God through those things. Okay? Now, let's hone in on... Let's hone in on, look, I was going to use that, it doesn't work, Uh, on Scripture. That would be a good thing. Number two, God recorded his revelation. If we get this, because all arguments come back to this, all the frustrating emails I got on Sunday's sermon, it all comes back to Scripture. Is this God's word? Is it true? Can we toy with it? Can we pick and choose? Is it really true? God's mind for the world. So we got to focus on this. Because we'll make statements about God that your friends will say in the next 12 weeks, I don't believe that. Okay? We've got to know that the revelation that we derive this information from is, is accurate. So we need to spend a little time talking about that. So let's understand God breathed. And I know for some of you, this is, this is review. God breathed. Let's understand God breathed. Did I write that down for you? No. Okay. Let's cram some information in there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. You don't need to turn there. It's all on the board. And that's a little easier to read, isn't it? Yay. All scripture. This is the uh, NIV. Translated, uh, what, 1979? In the New Testament, at least. Uh, and here's how it reads. All scripture is God-breathed. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God wants to communicate in this passage to teach you, to rebuke you, correct you, and train you to be the right kind of person, do the right kind of thing. Okay, and he describes that. The adjective that's used is it's God-breathed, and that's supposed to some way you know, convince me that, wow, okay, this is useful for all of that. All right, so that's the key word, and we've used it a lot already uh, in our chart, God-breathed. All right, here's the problem. The King James Version of the Bible says it is given by the inspiration of God. Okay? The new King James, which is supposed to update the old English, says given by the inspiration of God. The New American Standard Bible says inspired by God. And I could list them all. Those are the ones that we often interface with. And we have the word inspired or inspiration as the key description of the scripture. And if you go to Bible school or seminary, you're going to have a course that's going to deal with the inspiration of the Bible. Okay? That comes from a 4th century translation of the Bible called the Vulgate, which was when the Bible was put by Jerome into Latin. Uh, That was the language of the church, it was the language of theology, and it was the language from which a lot of our English words come, as you know. The Latin... Divinitus inspirata is the phrase. Divinitus, we know that. Well, that's God, right? 
and inspirata. Oh, that's the word inspired. Inspiration. Okay? Here's the problem. If you go back to any, you can go to, I check all my Latin dictionaries. I got a few. And uh, if you look up the word inspirata in Latin, you will have, or inspiro the verb, you will have to breathe, to blow out, to breathe out. Inspiro. Okay? That's what the word meant in the fourth century when it was taken from the original language in Greek and translated into Latin and it became the Bible of the church and when we picked up vocabulary words in English from Latin. Inspiro. In English, though, the word that is chosen to translate inspiro from Latin and the other Greek word, which we'll talk about, uh, that is translated inspiration, does not mean to blow or to breathe out. It means, if you look it up in any dictionary, English lexicon, a stimulation of the mind or emotions to a high level of feeling or activity. What are you doing? I'm cleaning out the garage. Why? Why was just inspired to do it? (laughs) That was fiction. But uh, you know what I'm saying? That would be a true inspiration. Inspired. Okay? Another uh, descriptive definition is a sudden creative act or idea. Something that is inspired is a sudden creative act or idea. I uh, was sitting on a log and I was inspired to write this great song that became the song of the 21st century. Inspired. Okay? Because of that disconnect right there, most people do not understand the concept of inspiration. And thankfully, newer translations have been bold enough to translate it God-breathed. The uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, the uh, NIV, um, I think even the RSV for all the knocks that it gets. Uh, God-breathed, breathed out by God. That's an important switch. And it'd be great if we could even change our little theology textbooks to read something that relates to being blown out by God, which sounds odd, to be breathed out by God. The doctrine of breathing out of God doesn't sound as good. So, if you take the word inspiro and you know it's the concept of to breathe out, at least we can note this about the passage. The adjective in the sentence does not describe the writer, which is where most people go. Wow, Peter was inspired by God to write the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. God inspired him to do that. That would make the adjective qualify the writer. The passage is not about the writer. The writer of Scripture is not inspired as described in this text in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Okay? The writer was not inspired to write the text. That may sound like heresy for some people who don't understand the concept of inspired. The adjective does not describe the reader, which is the way most people in small group Bible studies understand it. I was reading this passage. How inspiring. I was inspired. Okay? The passage may prompt you to application, but that's not what this text is all about. The reader is not inspired when he reads the text. And this is the disconnect. This is why we can't quite figure this out. The adjective in the text describes the document. And for our definition of inspiration, that doesn't seem to... I don't get it. Because inspiration, the text, it's, it's a document. How is that inspired? See, According to the doctrine of quote-unquote inspiration, 
the Bible says that the text itself is inspired, not the author, not the reader. In other words, the word inspiration, the old word inspiration, is telling us about how we got the book. Not about the authors, not about the readers. How did we get the book? By inspiration. Now that's old hat for some of you, but is that helpful for some of you? That's new, right? A new distinction? <laughs> Please say it is. Yes, it's new to some of you. It's helpful? Great. Let's get back to this now. So let's deal with the word. This is not really revelatory because it's, it's obviously just a simple wooden translation in most modern translations now. Theopneustos, theopneustos, compound word. Theo, theo, it's not just uh, Dr. Dr. Huxtable's son. Uh, It's the Greek word for God, right? Theos, compound word. We've lost the sigma. Theos means God, simple, okay? Pneustos, as we say it, theopneustos, is really the P is silent. Nuo is the verb, where we get this, the rest of the word from, the other part of the word, and that means to blow, God blew, (laughs) which doesn't sound real doctrinal or biblical, but that's the word we're dealing with. That's why a literal translation of this, you're really dealing with what's there. Now, we've got to make some sense of it, but that's what we're saying. So let's make sense of it with a picture. Oh, that's good. Sailors. Got some sailors in the room. Other passages that describe the revelation of God is described with a word that is used in passages like Acts chapter 27, verses 15 through 17, to describe the way the wind moves a boat. The wind moves the boat along. And it is really the wind doing the work, not the boat. It's not a motorboat. It's a sailboat. And the sailboat captures the wind and it drives the vehicle. That's how it's put, for instance, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own surmising, his own thinking, his own interpretation. He didn't sit there and figure it out. Here's the important description. The prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Here's the teaching about the inspiration, if you will, or the God-breathedness of Scripture. But men spoke from God as they were, here's the word that's used in Acts chapter 27, of a boat, carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is what the Bible is claiming about the authors and the means or mechanism by which we get the book. For instance, when Moses said, God is a jealous God, we'll look at that one. Moses didn't think about that. He didn't come up with that. He didn't interpret something in the environment. He didn't sit there and have some kind of interpretative uh, moment of inspiration, as we use the word, and say, I think God is inspired, and since I'm an important guy, I can say that. (laughs) That's called the Church of Rome. You understand that's how that works, right? I'm not trying to bash, you know, Catholics, but I'm trying to make clear that's the doctrine of the church. I'm in charge. I get to tell you what's true and what's not. Purgatory. You could ask anything, right? The sinlessness of Mary. Whatever you want, we don't have to really prove it in the scripture. They say, because I'm authorized, I get to tell you. And I can reason my way to the the whole concept. For instance, the Catholic church, just to show the, the logic of this, for instance, the immaculate conception of Mary is a doctrine that Mary was not conceived through normal sexual intercourse. I know you think that immaculate conception means that 
Christ was not born by natural sexual intercourse. That's not the teaching of Rome on the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is Mary's parents never had sex. Okay? Now, you're never going to find that here. But the doctrine of the church is, since I am authorized, right? wherever that authorization they feel comes from, they feel it comes from God in some mysterious way, I can tell you what I think. And I think that it makes sense biblically to say this ex cathedra or without error, and I'm going to tell you Mary's parents didn't have sex to have Mary. And that becomes dogma now. Dogma. This is true. Okay? That is not what the Bible is claiming. That there were some really special guys like Moses that got to tell you what was true. The concept was that Moses was carried along by God's spirit to tell you God is a jealous God. Now that's kind of, in some ways, counterintuitive. But the Bible says the Holy Spirit said that. He just happened to use Moses to do it. That's what this text is teaching. Now we get the concept of God breathed. When you play the trumpet, right? The trumpet isn't working. The player is working. The player is using his breath to use that instrument to get the music out of the bell of the instrument. That's what's being claimed. God breathed means God is now talking and he's picking up a person to do it. Or writing. Preaching and writing. Critical critically important. An analogy. This is letter B. Did you get all that in that little tiny space, letter A? Letter B. Depends on how you write. Let's compare these two things. Left box. God sends the incarnate word. You know what incarnate means, right? Flesh. He puts on meat. Carnate. Carne. Carne asada. Chili con carne. Carne. Meat. God sends the incarnate word. God also sends the written word. I'm ripping this off, by the way, from Paul Enns, who is credited in super small print. You'll never read it, but this is out of his little theology textbook. It was so good. I've never seen it anywhere else, so I stole it from him. And when you see it from three different sources, you don't have to credit anybody, right? <laughs> but I've got to credit Paul because I haven't seen anybody else do this. This is good. God sends the incarnate word. He's going to speak to people in these last days in his son. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, okay? And he's also going to send the written word, God-breathed word, okay? Now, the incarnate word, Jesus, came through a human parent. Her name was Mary. The Bible says the Holy Spirit, here's the terminology, overshadowed her, where she didn't need Joseph in the whole process. Human parent, human vessel... Holy Spirit activity, something supernatural results, the Word, the living Word, the Word of God that we say is without sin. But you might look at him and say, you got your mom's eyes, don't you? What do you mean? You never thought about that, have you? Oh, you got your mom's earlobes. Got your mom's uh, smile. Got your mom's teeth. You don't think Jesus reflected Mary? God used a human vessel. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. And overshadowed her. That's the biblical terminology. And boom, we had a perfect person. Same concept here. God sends the written word. He now picks up human authors. Okay? The Holy Spirit now moves them along. 
Let me shift that word now to the word that we often use in doctrine, superintends. He moves them along. It's not their own interpretation. We take all those elements from 2 Peter and we put them in the word superintends. The Holy Spirit overshadows or superintends those authors so that they end up with the word without error. Now, most people don't believe the Bible is God's word. They don't believe that this is a supernatural product. Okay? Just like, as I was reading, one liberal who believes that Jesus was just the oops, you know, product, uh, bastardly product of an immoral activity in the back seat of a camel. You know, that's what Jesus was. That's what he wrote. Professor of, of, uh, of theology, I think, at Claremont McKenna schools. So basically, your Christ that we sing about is, uh, is a teenage pregnancy. And uh, they just couldn't keep their clothes on. And so they had this, this illegitimate child. Okay, if you believe that, you believe that. But we assume because of everything that Jesus did, he was not a normal kid. <laughs> or less than a normal kid, an illegitimate child. We don't believe that. The Bible, we look at the Bible, we look at what it says about itself, and then we examine it and we say, couldn't have been just a bunch of guys sitting on a rock trying to figure God out. Which happened, by the way, over what? Uh, 1,400 years, three continents, three languages, 40 authors have this systematized propositional book that allows us to write systematic theologies on. We say this isn't, this isn't a normal book. God records his revelation. So here's a definition that's probably worth writing down. Some of you have written my definition of God-breathed doctrine down, but it wouldn't hurt you to write it every three years, so... Let's write it again. God breathed. Here's what God breathed describes. A process. Remember, the adjective does not describe the author. It does not describe the person who reads it. It describes the process. What's going on? How how do we get the Bible? The process by which God records his message in words. Okay? That's why we need the concept of God-breathed doctrine to sit under the doctrine of Revelation. Because there were things that Jesus said or things that Peter said or things that Isaiah said that were never recorded. But we're talking about stuff that was recorded. Well, according to 2 Peter and 2 Timothy, this was God recording his message in words using chosen human authors. And if you want to put something next to that, you might want to put prophets. That's what they were. New Testament still used that word, although another word overshadowed it. It was a bigger term called apostles, chosen human authors, utilizing, just like Mary had a kid named Jesus who she had in a supernatural way with the Holy Spirit, but still bore the image of Mary's you know, smile, utilizing their writing styles and personalities. This wasn't uh, the, you know, the, the feast with Belshazzar in the, on the wall. It's not the tablets on the Mount Sinai, although that's how written revelation began. You understand that, right? That was the, in the chronology of the writing of God. That was the first. After that, the Pentateuch was written as they went out in the desert. Utilizing their writing styles and personalities. Resulting in an exact record of God's revelation. And when I say resulting, I mean immediate result. The immediate result. Because obviously this was written a long time ago on parchments and vellum and documents that could not survive the ages. That's why I have to put this phrase in the original document. 
or documents. I guess she needs an S on the end. God breathed. Here's what God breathed is all about. The description of God breathed is, is a process. It's describing a process in which God recorded his message in words using chosen human authors, utilizing their writing styles and personality. That's why the vocabulary for Hebrews is way different than the vocabulary of 1 John. That's why the vocabulary of Genesis is a lot different than the vocabulary of Jeremiah. Their writing styles and personalities, resulting, though, in an exact record of God's revelation in the original documents. That's a biblical, orthodox, conservative definition of what used to be called the doctrine of biblical inspiration. I prefer we change the word, though, to theopanoustos, or God-breathed. That's more accurate. Definition, I'm just going to add a picture, and if you're a good artist, you can draw this. (laughs) But I often say this, I throw it in as a sidebar on Sundays, I always picture the guy, I usually make it me, in the garage, building something, usually with a chisel and a, you know, a stone, or in this case, I got to found a guy with a hammer working on wood. The marks of the product, the, the, the marks on the product, they reflect the tools, but the overall product could not be built by the tools, it was the result of the craftsman. Same thing with the Bible. The Bible is so unique in that tools themselves couldn't write it. You want, to know, you want to see what tools can write? Look at other religious books. If you want to look at what tools can't possibly write, that have the imprimatur, I often say, the, the fingerprints of God, the signature of God, with predictive prophecy, because no one can predict the future but God, then you've got the Bible. The Bible's a unique book. But this is a good picture to infuse in your mind. This is inspiration. The Bible could not possibly be written by Moses in 1445 B.C. and John on the island of Patmos in 90 A.D. predicting future events, which they did, that did come true between the intervening time and will come true and have come true since John wrote in Revelation, where all the 38 other authors in between agree with one another about who God is, predicting events before they happen. Um, This is the document that God wrote. And as one old pastor used to say, as he'd hold up his Bible, the only book God ever wrote. This is a unique window into who God is. That's why for us, the end of every argument is what does the Bible teach? Now, that's got to be argued on other levels because now everybody's going to say, well, how do you do that? Like the emails I got this week. Well, you really can't believe that, can you? Because, you know, then we'd have to, I don't know, we'd have to do really weird stuff. Different sermon. But at least as we go through the next 10 weeks or so of this seminar, we want to say the word of God is the final arbiter of truth statements about who he is. The result, just to put it in some words that we won't cover elsewhere, in the olden days we'd call it verbal inspiration. We'd call it verbal theopanoustos or whatever you want to call it. And that means that the words themselves are God-breathed. That God's attention was all the way down to the specific words that were written. And if you want a passage for that, that I flew in creatively there because I was out of room, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. And you all have that memorized, right? Not the smallest letter or the least stroke of the pen will disappear until all has been fulfilled. Jesus said that. In the old, uh, what did the King James say? Not one jot or tittle. Remember that? Some intervening translations have said it rightly, uh, not a seraph or a yoth. And just to show you what we're talking about, and by the way, this is in a bigger font than the font you're reading off of, here's some Hebrew characters. 
And there, it's obviously not read from left to right. It's read from right to left. That may not be obvious, but it should be um, now that I said it. Do you see those first two letters? Dalit and Resh. Do they look a lot alike? Dude, yeah, they look almost exactly alike. Do you see there's a tiny little difference up at the top of the, bottom, of the right? That's called a serif. We have them. The difference between Arial and New Times Roman is the bumps on the edges. For us, it just, well, that's fancier, right? Or that's cleaner. Well, for them, it meant something. When there was a bump at the top of that little curve that looks like the number seven, that changes everything. It goes from a D to an R, a D sound to an R sound, okay? That is Dalit Resh. That little one that is a comma, we call it an apostrophe, is the letter. When we talk about a, uh, a jot or a tittle, the smallest letter, that's the yoth. That's the smallest character. And the next one there, and we could do others, uh, you could do a lot of them. But here's cough uh, and, uh, and um, bait. Cough and bait. Uh, it looks like, they look like uh, backward C's, right? Well, do you see there's a tiny little difference? There's a tiny little bu- bump. That's a, that's a serif. That's a bump, a tittle, right? A jot and tittle. Jesus, obviously, using big language, dramatic language to say every single letter is going to be fulfilled. God knows what he wrote and he's going to... I mean, this is not giving people thoughts and running with it. The God-breathed doctrine is about the document itself and the document includes the words. And if you want to test case this one, just jot this down. We don't have time for it. But Mark chapter 12, verses 24 through 27 which is a great text when he's arguing to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And you know the difference between the two. I mean, there were several, but one of them was the Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. And the Pharisees did. And as I often say, and it's always a cheap laugh, and new people think I'm hilarious when I say it, right? The Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. And the way to remember it is they were always sad, you see. Only two visitors here that haven't heard that. Pharisees believed in the afterlife, Sadducees didn't. So Jesus, to get out of a... Uh, 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 an argument here where they were attacking him, he turns them on themselves, a little divide and conquer, and he gets them in a, to, to pit against one another by then bringing up the issue of the resurrection because he knows, well, they don't agree on that. <laughs> They've ganged up to attack Christ, so he's going to bring up the afterlife. And as he does, he brings up the tense of a Hebrew word in the Old Testament when the burning bush episode was going on there in, uh, what is that, uh, Exodus chapter 2, to Exodus chapter 4, and the voice comes out and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, listen, come on. Don't you know? He says, you don't know the power of God and you do not understand the scripture. Haven't you read that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, they were in about the t- t- uh, 2000 BC. Moses is in about the 15th century BC. So 500 years ago, Abraham had died. And God is saying, hey, Don't you know Abraham? I'm sorry. Don't you know Moses that I am the God of Abraham? If there was no afterlife, Jesus said, the text wouldn't read, I am the God of Abraham. It would read, I was the God of Abraham. Don't you know? Haven't you read? Don't you understand the scriptures? What do you mean? The words are important. The tense of the verb is important. That's why we send pastors to school to learn those languages because we need to understand the languages to be able to figure out every little part of what the scripture has been revealed to us in, in scripture, what's been inspired, God breathed for us so that we can pull it apart. Same argument is made in Galatians about the plural or singular of the, of the word seed. When he said he didn't say seeds, he said seed, meaning Christ. So, verbal. Plenary, we call it. Plenary. 
which means all of it, right? All the Bible is, is God-breathed. And of course, if you just want a simple statement for that, we already read it, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture. Now, immediately people throw a flag on the play there. Well, wait a minute. All Scripture, uh, in Greek, the, the word uh, graphe, the, the writings, refer to the Old Testament, so we can't be talking about New Testament, so we're left in the dark. A couple things really quick. See if we can jam through this. I got no room for it on your worksheet, but real quick. Jesus obviously spoke the the words of God. If he is the son of God, if he is God incarnate, and certainly he talked that way. He talked about, he quoted uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, word of God stands for, and then he says stuff like this. Oh, by the way, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so you're speaking the words of God, all right? Which is for most people where it stops. And I wish we didn't even have the red letter Bibles, right? Because people, oh, that's the part I, you know, that's, that was another hit on the emails this week, right? Well, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Okay, he didn't talk about a lot of things that people believe in because they're in the Bible, but more on that in a minute. Jesus spoke the words of God. So we can take the red letters and go, okay, New Testament, clearly God's word. Jesus appointed apostles, which in Scripture, now this is important doctrine here, and I, I, I like to say they're on par with, or they're Allah, the Old Testament prophets. Nabi is the Hebrew word for prophet. Nabi means a mouthpiece, a spokesperson. And you can see, and the megaphone is the picture of that, God's breath goes through the prophet to speak the words to the people. In the New Testament, apostles now are equated with prophets. They are the representations of Christ. Christ speaks the words that will last forever, and then he authorizes his emissaries, his apostolic band, and now they speak the words of God. Example, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. I want you to recall, Peter says, the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles, your Los Angeles, you know, Dodgers. <laughs> they had the prophet. You got the apostles, and all of it is stuff. You've got to recall this. See? See how he equates that? Happens a lot in, in the Scripture. He proclaimed, the apostles proclaim God's words. I mean, that's the way it's presented in the New Testament. For instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, now we're not talking about written here, you accepted it not as the words of men, but what it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you. Wait a minute, the word of God? Yeah, the new covenant word of God, it came through the apostles. In this case, it's testifying that it came through their preaching. How about this? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, which most Christians apply to themselves. This is not a passage about you. The second chapter of 2 Corinthians is about the apostles. He says, this is what we speak, speaking of the, about the apostolic band. Not in words taught by human wisdom, just like 2 Peter says about the Old Testament prophets, right? But in words taught by the Spirit carrying us along, moving us along, not our own interpretation, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. Words about truths you can't see. Revelation. The apostolic band. Even right there, we can dismantle the argument pitched at me all week, and that is, well, Jesus never said that was wrong. Well, did the apostles say it was wrong? (laughs) Well, wait a minute. What about the old covenant moral law? Did that say it was wrong? I mean, just New Testament alone. Because... The apostles were authorized to speak the word of God. And just to drive this one step further, the work of the apostles with the prophets was called in Scripture the foundation. 
God's household is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That phrase, God's household, I'm not just injecting that. That came from verse 19. It was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. So three avenues of written revelation. Prophets, Christ, apostles. And we are being built on top of that. That means we are living our lives. Our doctrine, our teaching is predicated on that. The apostles considered other, other apostles' writings as ta'agrafe, the holy scriptures. Example, 2 Peter chapter 3. Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. That's the concept carried along, which we saw in the last passage. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable distort, people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Do you see what he just did with Paul's writings? Oh, that's scripture too. Tographe. All scripture is theopneustos. It's God-breathed. Is this helpful? Even if you don't think it's helpful, it's important. <laughs> so this is good for you. It's good for us. We've got to do this. All right. Verbal. The words themselves. Plenary. All of the scripture, including New Testament, including what the apostles say. Inerrant. We've already touched on that. But what we mean by that is it's without error in the original manuscripts, right? Now we're quibbling about this word spelled that way or the inversion of that word. That's called textual criticism. We'll deal with that maybe next year in our fall semester. But the concept is it comes to us without error. Obviously, that's what Psalm 19 is all about. Psalm 19, 7 through 9, it's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's flawless. Jeremiah chapter 25, 12 through 14 it is without error. It is, it is God's word. Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. Both Jeremiah 25 and Romans chapter 1 talk about the written word predicting things ahead of time. How do I know it's God's word without error? Well, I can cross-check it with itself, and I see it is. But then I can see the imprimatur of God, which is the predictive prophecy. And Jeremiah 25 speaks of the written promises that they were about to go and fulfill in Babylon. And Romans 1 talks about the fulfillment of the prophetic promises about the Messiah. All right. Now, God's written information has advantages. God's written info about himself has big advantages. Is that how I put it? A little different on the screen. God's written information about himself. Now, here, here's where we're, I thought we were talking about God. We're, we're getting to it. It's claims about God are authoritative. And you know that's where I was going. If it says God is jealous, God is jealous. I don't care if you don't think a perfect God would be jealous. That's the authoritative word. It is not just another opinion. And that is where most people in our culture live. Well, that's the opinion of some, you know, they spent a lot of, they didn't watch a lot of TV. They had a lot of time to think about it. But that's just their thoughts on God. That's exactly what's going on today. Exactly what's going on today. Who was that Christian artist that came out? Uh, I just got, where are you, John? John sent me that article. What was his name? The Christian artist came out as a homosexual. What is his name? No, uh, breaking news, so important. We all have heard of it. Um, <laughs> Bolts, Ted, was it Russ? Ted, the guy who's, who? Ray Bolts, is that his name? CC, Christian Music, Dove Awards, 
Christian songs, they sing them at funerals, they sing them in church. Ray Boltz comes out this week and says, uh, I'm a homosexual. Divorced his wife last year and the other shoe fell. Now he's in, in, in Florida, homosexual. And his response, if you listen to him uh, on his blog or whatever he wrote where I read this week, hey, listen, uh, I know God uh, wouldn't make me this way. It's the typical argument from Sunday. And then tell me, you know, not, not to be who I am. And, you know, he's certainly not going to send me to hell for this, okay? Which, of course, means that everything that says that in the Scripture, right? Like the homosexual, the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is just as important. Actually, your opinion is more important. But it is just another voice in the argument. I think this way, and I think God would do this. Ray Boltz is making a theological statement about what he believes God to be. God would affirm this. I just know he would. I've been singing about him for all these years. And whatever this says here, whatever, I I just, I don't agree with that. Okay? All I'm saying is we are different here. At Compass Bible Church, where we say the Bible is central, if it says that, uh, you know, blonde-haired people are going to hell, right? There's one for you. I don't care how irrational that may seem to us, right? Or if it says you want to go to heaven, you've got to streak down the I-5 at 5 o'clock with no clothes on. What if it said that? Well, I just don't think that would be right. It is telling us to do stuff like get dunked in water, and it's not a pool party, it's not your bath time, and, and do it in front of people. There are weird things you understand in the Bible that it expects you to do, and it's not an opinion, see, and when it comes to the Bible, it's an authoritative document. It's not an opinion. If you're a note taker, Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 21 through 29 would be a great passage to read. Let's read it. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7. I love Compass Bible Church. I was preaching somewhere on Monday after I preached here on Sunday and Saturday and Friday and Thursday. Uh, and I had people turn in their Bibles, man, and I just did not hear the Compass Bible Church rustling of pages. And I realized how blessed I am. Although I think we could have trained that other group. They just needed some work. I said, no, come on, I'm serious. Turn in your Bibles. No, come on, really. I mean it. So I'm so glad you do that. I take it for granted. Jeremiah chapter 7. I mean, you read the whole book, obviously, but verse 21. You want to talk about the authoritative, not an opinion. Look at this concept here. This is what Yahweh Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings and your other sacrifices and eat meat yourself. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. And it wasn't just about that stuff. It was about this. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed, as was, is happening today on Christian music websites and all kinds of pastors' blogs following the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backwards, not forward. 
From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they didn't listen to me. And they didn't pay attention. Even that pronoun shift is important there, isn't it? Right? I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they didn't listen to them. Is that what he says? They didn't listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and they did more evil than their forefathers. When I tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When they call to them, I will not answer them. When you call them, I will not answer. Therefore, say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed Yahweh its God or responded to correction. Look, at, here's one to underline for you. Here's God's assessment when you don't do what Scripture says. They don't say, well, you've gotten on to the next level now and you've kind of pieced it all together and figured it out. Truth has perished. Do you catch the connection there? There's some epistemology for you. If you do not affirm what is written and what is given through the prophets, truth has perished. Today we think, I can disregard this and here's the truth. You can't do it. The bibliology presented to us in Scripture is if you set the Scripture aside, say, well, I don't really agree with that. I think God is this way. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. I don't even talk about it. Cut off your hair. Throw it away. Take up a lament for the barren heights. That's their sign of, of mourning. For Yahweh has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. <laughs> the only hope for America, the only hope for Orange County, the only hope for your family, the only hope for our church is that we do what the Bible says. That's it. I mean, really. And that ain't popular today. That ain't. Open up your discipleship journals and your Christianity Today magazines and go look at all the seminary blogs and it is absolutely nuts. We have set aside the written word and surmised what truth is. And the Bible says you set aside the written word. It's not an opinion. It's not a step stool for you to you know, contemplate truth. When you set aside the written word, truth has perished claims about God that we're going to look at throughout this series are authoritative, they're not opinion. Number two, claims about God, this is the great thing about written information about God, his written word, his written revelation. The great advantage is it's propositional. I'm going to use some of these words because this is the debate still uses these words. Okay? By propositional, let's put something antithetical to that. It is not subjective. Now, it's hard to find a definition of propositional in the theological discussions that take place today. But what we mean, and it's under attack, are you familiar with the emergent church and all that's going on in the emergent church today? There is an attack on what they call propositional truth. They don't understand propositional truth because what they're attacking is your statements. And their concept is God is so much bigger than statements. We're going to be making statements all semester. And we're going to get excited about statements that we make about God. And we are going to see those statements as truth containers. They are representing, do you remember the, the, the Da Vinci Code thing I did? And we put a slide up about truth, true truth. We use Francis Schaeffer's phrase. Okay? True truth means that what I say over here relates to something on the other side called reality. My expression and reality have a correspondence. As one, one person put it, and I think this was good, no matter how you say, my cat is dead, this is an argument that's used, right? You can say it in English, you can say it in French, you can say it in Spanish, you could draw the picture, you could write, but that is representing propositional truth if indeed your cat is dead. See? The concept, what we fundamentalists are, are saying is not, hey, 
God fits into our sentences. We're not saying that, okay? That's what they accuse us of. What we're saying is that statements about God have a correspondence to reality. It's propositional. It can be contained in sentences. And if you don't think that's the way we live, I mean, talk to people uh, to, who, who, uh, who litigate uh, uh, contracts, right? It's all about the statements. I mean, so your, your, your loan, try and do whatever you want, whatever feels right. Uh, you know, country will let you know that's not what you agreed to. Propositional truth. There are statements that represent uh, re- reality. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, is an example of people that felt like truth was subjective. I can state what I want and live however I want. I can state and affirm the truth, but I can live however I want. We'll get to that. We don't need to turn there because we're running out of time. But that was an example of people that took propositions about God and then didn't believe that they were true because they weren't going to live by those propositions. The great thing about Scripture is it's propositional. Perspicuous. Now, that's not a word you're going to use every day. And I, I don't like using words that, that, aren't, that are superfluous, like the word superfluous. Um, no, that has meaning in my head, but um, perspicuous. The claims about God are perspicuous. I use that because, and thanks to the emergent church, this is now becoming an important word again. This was an old word from Reformed theology in olden days and old discussions. And I even pulled an old a book out about debating theology and old Baptist history or something. And they used the concept of perpiscuity, right? Uh, and I realized that would be nothing today. We would be like, oh, well, that's ancient history if it weren't for the emergent church. You understand the emergent church not only says that truth cannot be propositional, because the way they say it is... That here's the way emergent pastors will put it. Um, personal truth. This is one way they, they banner it. Personal truth trumps, they won't use the word trump, they'll say is always superior to whatever you guys call propositional truth. Which is why I use the antithetical phrase subjective. That's subjectivism. Right? The second thing they say is you can't really know what those things mean. Because they just aren't clear. Because human language and scripture itself as a medium for knowledge is not comprehensible. You can't come to clear conclusions about it. So you got to stand back and say, well, we just don't get it. Okay? Now, the old phrase in the olden days uh, was this word, um, perpiscuity, which simply means it can be known and it can be understood. So the antithetical word here is, it's not unknowable, okay? I know it's a double negative, but it's not unknowable. It's knowable. You can know something about God. Now, here's where they get you. The emerging guys will say, well, you can't know everything about God. I can't know everything about my wife, right? (laughs) But I can know something about my wife. And I can know something about her with certainty. And there are plenty of things I know with certainty about my wife. But I understand. I can't even understand another human being fully. But that does not mean that I can't assert propositional realities about things that I do know that I can know. And the scripture presents itself as a knowable document to relate to us knowable truths. And the olden, you know, olden days, theologians called it, that's called the perpiscuity of scripture. They call the first one the authority of scripture. The propositional nature of scripture. The perpiscuity of scripture. 
the best way for me to prove perspicuity is to look at Scripture and to see its expectation about how you ought to understand it. Okay? Here's some examples. By the way, you know why we were ripe for the emergent church movement? Because Barna did a poll, I don't know, 10 years ago, 8 years ago, that said that 53% of Americans don't believe in true truth. That there cannot be, in other words, I would put it, is absolute truth. When you have churchgoers saying, well, we really can't be certain about truth, and it really needs to be your truth and your, my truth and his truth, then we're ready for pastors to get up on a stage and say it. And that's what we're that's what's being preached today. In the cool churches, did I make that clear a few months ago? <laughs> of which I'm clearly not even qualified to be a part of their pastor's conferences. Where did I turn you? Matthew chapter, no, Mark chapter 12. Jesus replied, verse 24. Oh, this is, okay, this is Mark's account of the same thing we already talked about. Jesus replied, you are, are you not in error? Okay, you, you know what that means. Wrong. <laughs> Which, by the way, you can't be wrong in an emergent church. You just can't be wrong. Just, nobody's wrong. We're all just conversing, and we're just kind of figuring out, who knows anything? We don't know anything. You can't, no one can be wrong. Jesus replied, you are, you are in error. Okay? Well, th- he can say that because he's God incarnate. He can say that. But that's, he's not claiming his own authority here. Look what he says. You do not know the scriptures. See there? Propositional authoritative statements that apparently should be clear enough for me to figure this out. Well, you don't know the power of God either. When the dead rise, they'll neither marry or be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Now about the rising of the dead, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? He's not the God of the dead. Is he? Come on. He's God of the living. You are badly mistaken. Hmm. By the way, I didn't put these other references down, but you might want to put, it, put down John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47. John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47. And Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, is the heart of the matter. Both of those passages say, books will be open. In John chapter 5, it's the words of Christ in the book of Moses. Okay? And you will be judged. Now, I think I cannot be judged and be held accountable for doing something or not doing something if there is no perspicuity of Scripture, right? If I come to my mom, latchkey kid as I was, and said, Mom, your note was not clear. I couldn't possibly be so arrogant as to assume that I understood what you meant by this phrase. So I didn't do it. My mom believed in the perspicuity of every note she ever wrote. I'd lose that argument and get my hiney smacked around with the unbreakable plexiglass paddle. Why did she feel she had the right to punish me? Because she believed she was sufficient, sufficiently clear. See what I'm saying? 
Now, there are times I say to my kids something in passing as I'm running through the house, and I won't punish them because I think, I don't even really know if I even said what I thought I said. But if I write something down, right, the exception of my five-year-old, I expect that we're not, we're not going to have any argument here. I can communicate on paper, and you can read. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 12. And John chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 20, we will be judged. You cannot argue that we don't have a clear word from God if God promises to judge us. by Unless, of course, you're in Alice in Wonderland and you say, well, we don't even really know if that means judgment or not. Who knows if we're going to be judged? You can see where this is a self-defeating argument. Because even their assertions about not having assertions is an assertion. Right? Think about it. The relativists are absolutely sure that we should all be relativists. Have you ever noticed that? It's amazing how absolute they are about claims of relativism. (laughs) D. Oh, this is the best part. This is why I pulled out Neil Postman this morning. What's the category? Written information has a great advantage. Why? Because it's eternally there. Right? That's the great thing about written, propositional, authoritative perspicuous comments. They're always there. Readers love that about books, right? they're They're just there. It's by the nightstand. It's there. That book is always speaking. I just got to pick it up and read it. And that's what I mean in this statement. And I think in classic theology, that's what we mean when we talk about the eternality. When we talk about the attributes of, of the revelation of God, it's an eternal statement, okay? And by that, it's maybe a little strong to use the word immutable, but it is an unchanging document. Okay? It is a document that says what it says, and it always says it because it is written. It's not a play. It's, it's, not, you know, it's not a piece of, of, of melodic sounds. All of those things cannot be analyzed, and that's the advantage of this, by the way. We don't even live in a culture that wants to think in a typographical way anymore. We are a visual age and a visual culture, which unfortunately has led us to take documents like this and we say, we don't even want to really work to understand it. Therefore, I don't even think it's understandable. But the great thing, if you really believe that it's an authoritative, propositional, perspicuous document, it's always there speaking the truth forever. That's what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. These things, he says, are laid before the God with him, before him with whom we have to do. We have to give an account to him, and he's speaking through his book all the time. Classic passage, though, which I guess you could put that passage. That was Hebrews 4.12. But Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. And we already quoted Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Right? I tell you, heaven and earth won't disappear till the smallest letter, the yoth or the seraph, least stroke of the pen. None of it's going to disappear until everything is accomplished. It is always speaking. It is always there. Psalm 50. I didn't put this one down either. Oh, do we have time for that? No, we don't. Uh, Psalm 50, though. You know this passage. I quote it a lot. Psalm 50, verses 19 through 22. Psalm 50, verses 19 through 22. 
It says, these things you have done after a long list of sins. And it says, and I kept silent and you thought I was altogether like you. Now the context is I didn't break through in judgment, but had you picked up the book, here's the assumed backdrop. You would have known that I said it was wrong. I said it. Every time you pick it up, it can speak truth to you because it is codified propositional truth. What does God approve of? Well, I suppose if you don't read it and you don't think about it, you can start to think, well, God is like me. He probably likes the things that I like, no matter how wrong or perverted or, or, or you know, prohibited they might be. That's why reading the Bible is so important. Because every time we read it, it again, it, it, it speaks. It speaks. It's speaking now. It is eternal. Lastly. No applause, please. Lastly. Its claims are sufficient. There's another statement we used to make in historical theology about the sufficiency of revelation. The revelation of God is sufficient. Now that was something theologians came up with to describe revelation because they knew it wasn't exhaustive. Okay? They knew it wasn't exhaustive. But it is sufficient. And then to invert that would not be to say it's not exhaustive. We could say that to state it negatively. But to state it positively, let's say it this way, it's not inadequate. In other words, we don't need an upgrade. It's not like that new software where we can't wait for it to have you know, the 2.0 version. We don't need, Joseph Smith, another testament of, of Christ. Right? We have what we need. It is sufficient. Now, what you have to complement that with, it doesn't tell us everything we need to know, or everything we want to know, but it tells us everything we need to know with him, before him, with whom we have to do. He tells us what we need to know. No better passage than this one. So we ought to close with this. Let's turn to this one. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Once you jot that down, let's look at this one in closing. And if you're a Sunday school grad, I hope immediately 2 Peter chapter 1 popped into your mind, right? Verse 4, he's given us these great and precious promises so that through them we can participate in the divine nature. Well, it started with this statement. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Scripture is adequate. It is not inadequate. And to state it more positively, it is sufficient. You're going to have questions about God. How can he be three in one? We're going to get into that. Well, I don't understand. How can that be? You may not get everything crammed into your head, but what you have about God, the Bible says, is sufficient for us. Probably any more, and our fuses would start to fry. Verse 24. All the nations ask, why has Yahweh done this to the land? He just talked about how his anger would come. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 are all about the things he will do when they disobey. And he says, and when you do, and when I come back in judgment, they're going to say, why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, because this people abandoned the promptings of their heart. Is that what it says? (laughs) No, that's what Ray Boltz would have you believe, right? Uh, And I'm not picking on him. I'm just saying he represents a whole group of people that say, hey, we just do what we feel is right. No, no, because they forsook or abandoned the covenant that's the, the, the writing, the promise, the, the text of, of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the covenant made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods they did not know, gods he had not given them. Therefore, Yahweh's anger burned against this land so that he brought all of the curses written in this book. I promised I would do this. 
In furious anger and in great wrath, Yahweh uprooted them from the land and thrust them into another land as it is now. Now he's looking in a prophetic perfect, perfect what will happen when they disobey. And then after that, here's the punchline. Hey, there's stuff you're going to, you might even make excuses for not doing what's written because there's some things you don't know because it's not exhaustive revelation. Now listen, he says, the secret things, they belong to Yahweh our God. There is stuff that you will not find in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. And there's stuff you will not find about God in the 66 books of the Bible. He says, but the things revealed, you better own them. <laughs> Let me imply, you better know them. You better study them. They belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the promptings of our heart. Is that what it says? The words of this law. God has always been a God putting his mind on paper. And if I had time, the fourth point would have been <laughs> on, the, on the outline, every other revelation that we have contact with, which for us is conscience and creation, has to be tested, analyzed, and cross-checked against the written, propositional, perspicuous, authoritative. What else do we have here? Sufficient, eternal word of God. So we're Bible people here. Oh, you guys worship the book. You worship the Bible. I worship God. My God's bigger than the book. Well, fantastic. But when you deny the words of the book, truth has perished. Okay? And I'm into truth, and I hope you are too. So let's study the God of the book for the next few weeks. Okay? Okay?